to Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. Luke's Gospel, page 857. And so the first part of the passage is the recipients of the heavenly announcement. The recipients of the heavenly announcement. So we begin with this group of nearby shepherds. Picking up after the birth of Jesus, which we read just a few moments ago. So in verse 8, we hear these words. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. So shepherds were watching their flocks by night. Perhaps they had constructed a pen, as they sometimes might do, to keep the sheep. Or perhaps the sheep... Maybe they just were totally free-ranging it, right? They're just hanging out there. The shepherds were out there, not in a pen. Maybe uh, they were hanging out at this time, but regardless, they were watching them because the sheep were vulnerable, right? Pre, uh, predators might take them. Thieves might take them. So they were watching over them, and they're probably hanging out at this time, sitting by a fire, eating, talking, hanging out, maybe some of them asleep, whatever, And we see also their location. It says they were in the same region as, right, the same region as Bethlehem, though it doesn't specify exactly how far away. Just so you have an idea of where where these things were taking place, you see Jerusalem kind of in the lower part there. About six miles or so away from Jerusalem was Bethlehem. So somewhere in that region, the shepherds were watching their flock at nighttime. Let me just say a couple more things about the shepherds. Often it is said that the shepherds were outcast in Jewish society. They were outcast. But I think that's going a little bit too far as we understand a little bit more about these shepherds. Scripture never indicates that shepherds were the outcasts of society. Like, say, the tax collectors who were seen that way because they were greedy traders who were taking money from their own countrymen to give it to the Romans. Never says that about the shepherds. In fact, shepherds were regarded pretty highly in Scripture. Can you think of a few people who were shepherds in the Bible? Abraham, Moses, and David, right? They were all shepherds. The Lord compares himself, right, to a shepherd on numerous occasions. And then Jesus says in John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. In the early church, one of the titles For the office of the spiritual leaders of the church is pastor, which is basically shepherd, right? So that's one of the names of the leaders of the early or in the church is pastor or shepherd. So I take this a little bit personally, right? These these aren't the outcasts of society. No, just kidding. I, I could take it if that was the case, but I don't think it's actually the case. In fact, it's not until much later that that view that the shepherds shepherds were seen as societal outcasts came up into belief. David Crutchow is a New Testament scholar. He wrote a book called Urban Legends of the New Testament. He devotes a whole chapter to shepherds. And he says, I was unable to find even one source from first century Israel used to support the view that shepherds were societal outcasts. So rather than seeing them as outcasts, I think we should see them just as normal, common people. They weren't the elites of society, but they weren't the dregs of the society either. And I think that makes sense, that the announcement that was given to them, that we're going to see in a moment, was given to the common man, 
right? The average person. Now, before moving on, let me briefly address two popular questions that come up at Christmas time. First, was Jesus born on December 25th? Let me give you an absolutely clear, definitive answer to that question. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. The reason we don't know is because we don't know enough of shepherding practices of the time. Now, some people say that shepherds watch their flocks from April to November, so it couldn't have been in December. But others point to the fact that there were shepherds who watched flocks year-round nearby for the temple, which carried out its sacrifices all year long. So we don't know. And that's the bottom line, is that no one knows for sure if that was the exact date. That leads to the second question. Well, then where did that date, December 25th, come from? Skeptics will come along and say that Christians borrowed this from pagan celebrations. But the evidence for that is actually lacking. What the date seems to derive from is a belief that the earliest records we have, starting from about the second century in the church, There arose this belief that Jesus was conceived on the same calendar day as his death, which was March 25th. So then if you move it ahead from March 25th, nine months, what does that put you at? December 25th. Now, I'm not going to go into the details of why the church held that view, and it was not a universal view, it's not a biblical view, it's just basically a matter of speculation, right? As the church thought a little bit more about this stuff. If you're interested, I put it on our church Facebook page, I printed off some artic- an article that's very helpful, lays it out for you on the Welcome Center if you want to go further into that. But the bottom line is, is that the date of the, Christian, of the Christmas holiday, December 25th, doesn't have pagan origins, okay? And even if it did, it wouldn't affect the content of the Christmas story, would it? Not in the least bit, because the story is the story regardless of what date we celebrate it, right? So don't let that trip you up if someone tries to throw that at you as a stumbling block. So speaking of the Christmas story, let's get back on track here and look at our passage. The second part of the passage is the revelation of the heavenly announcement. So in verse 9, Heaven breaks into this earthly scene. It says there, And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. This is great. This is great stuff. Notice as we start off here, it says just one angel, right? Just one angel to start. There's more to come, but right now there's just one angel. And this angel isn't named. Some think that it was Gabriel, because Gabriel shows up in in chapter 1 when he announces to to. Zachariah, excuse me, the father of John the Baptist. And then, of course, he speaks to Mary about her supernatural conception. But I tend to think that since the angel isn't named, that he probably wasn't Gabriel. But regardless, not a big deal, not something to get fired up about. But anyway, it's an angel, and he shows up, and the presence of the angel is powerful, right? Because angels are radiant, supernatural beings. But I don't want you to get hung up on the presence of the angel, because really the presence of the angel pales in comparison to the presence of the glory of the Lord. Did you see that there in the passage? The glory of the Lord shone around them. That's not some kind of incidental detail. That is very significant. 
You guys remember when we did our series on the attributes of God, we talked about how the Lord is a spirit. God is a spirit. He doesn't have a physical body. And so when he would manifest himself, there would be these uh, theophanies, right? These manifestations of God where there was great light and clouds and so forth to indicate that God's presence was there. For example, Exodus 40, verse 34, says that the glory of the Lord filled the temple, right? Filled the temple. They could see it. Now, the glory of the Lord didn't appear very often in the Bible. Really, just at kind of important key moments in redemptive history. And it, it had been centuries since the glory of the Lord had appeared to mankind. So this was quite significant, wasn't it? So all said, between the presence of the angel and the glory of the Lord, this was an overwhelming experience for these group, this group of shepherds who were hanging out, watching the flock. This wasn't just like, oh, hey, guys, you see that kind of warm glow on the horizon? It wasn't like that. This was an overwhelming experience. That's why it said there that the shepherds were filled with fear. They were afraid of what they were seeing. That leads us to what we hear in verse 10, where the angel says, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all the people. So the angel comes along, as angels often do in Scripture. People are freaked out when they see him, right? So they're like, calm down, calm down. We want you to be at peace so that you actually understand and listen to what we're about to say. So he assures them and calms them down. And then the angel comes along Does the angel bring good news or bad news? Did you hear that? Did you read that? Good news. Good news. Good news. The Greek verb there is euangelizomai. To bring good news. To declare good news. It's where we get our English word evangelize. Evangelize. Now at the time, this wasn't a Christian word per se. It became one. But in the first century, that word, euangelizomai, was used throughout the Roman Empire of any kind of newsworthy occasion where someone has a birth or a wedding or the Romans have a great victory in battle. They would say, euangelizomai, right? Here is good news. And so the angels come along, they take the the vernacular of the people and they say, I have good news for you, shepherds. Now, who was the audience? Obviously, directly it was the shepherds, but Who was the audience of this good news beyond the shepherds? Well, the angel says the good news is not just for certain groups of people, is it? It's not just the political leaders like the Sadducees. It's not the brilliant people like the scribes. It's not the religiously zealous people like the Pharisees. It's not just a city like Jerusalem. It's not even just the people of Israel. The good news starts with Israel, but it doesn't end with them. The good news is for the whole world. And as these as the as the days of Jesus's life unfold and his ministry unfolds, we see this, don't we? Because by the end of Luke's gospel, Jesus says, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So who's the audience? Of this good news. All people, right? Now let's get to that announcement itself. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior 
who is Christ the Lord. There's a whole lot packed into that one sentence there. Let's kind of go slow. So he says, look, a birth has occurred, shepherds, here in the city of David. Of course, that's what city? Bethlehem, right? David was born there. That's where David's hometown was about a thousand years earlier. So now there's a new birth that's taken place here, a very great birth. And there are three titles, did you catch that, that are given to this child. Each title could be a whole sermon. But I'll give you an early Christmas present and be very brief about them. The first title is Savior. Savior. In the Old Testament, God is sometimes called the Savior of His people. What did He save them from? He saved them from physical harm, from enemies that surrounded them that wanted to harm them, right? So when we hear about this title given to this baby, the question naturally arises, so was this baby going to be a political savior, right? A military savior like a David. Well, certainly in the first century, the Jews desperately wanted such a savior to deliver them from the foot of the Romans. They wanted someone to kick out the Romans because the Romans occupied their land, levied heavy taxes against them and dominated their life. They wanted a savior to come and get them out of there. The the Romans who would crucify the Jews sometimes and who would kill them and oppress them. And they wanted that. But contrary to popular desire, this baby was not going to be a political military savior, but a spiritual savior. He would save his people from their sins. Matthew one twenty one. the angel said to Joseph, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Did you know that name Jesus? The name Jesus itself is the Greek counterpart to the Hebrew name Joshua, which literally means Yahweh is salvation. So Jesus's name itself means and points to the fact that he is going to save his people from their sins. And that's an even greater foe than the Romans. Because this foe leads to eternal judgment if it is not atoned for. So, one title is Savior. The other title that is next spoken of is Christ. Christ. Now, Christ is not Jesus' last name. You know, like Brian Sims. Sims is my last name. It's not Jesus Christ as his last name. It's really like Jesus, comma, the Christ. Christ was the Greek counterpart to Messiah or anointed one. He was the Christ. He was the one that was going to come, and as it was predicted in the Old Testament, come from the line of David and deliver the nation of Israel. And it was come and reign as their king for forever and ever. And as I said, in, in this day, the Jews longed for Christ to come and to destroy the Romans. But it's interesting, in Jesus, when he was going about ministering, he never really used that title very often, openly and publicly, about, I am the Christ. Why? Because they had all those misguided perceptions of who the Christ would be, right? But here we have it. 
So in case there's no question or doubt, from the very beginning, it's made very clear Jesus is the Christ. So we've seen two titles, Savior and Christ. The next title is where the shepherds probably got thrown for an even bigger loop. Because the next title is Lord, Lord. And that was used in the Greek language to translate the name of God, Yahweh, in the Old Testament, right? So that word Lord spoke of his deity. So shepherds, that child that's going to be born in Bethlehem or is now born is Savior. He is the Christ and he is God in human flesh. What? How can that be? This is where we bump into the mystery of God, right? That we spoke about a few weeks ago. No one can ever resolve in their minds how God took humanity on. So this heavenly announcement that is given is a mystery. But it's not new. It's not new. Can you think of an Old Testament passage that spoke of this very fact? How about Isaiah 9-6? 700 years earlier that said to the prophet Isaiah, for, uh, for, to you, for, uh, to, excuse me, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So God would be born as a child in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Now before moving on, it's worth mentioning the power that these words conveyed, would have conveyed to the Roman world that, uh, that Luke was addressing. Remember, at the very beginning of Luke's gospel, he says that this book, this gospel, was written to a Roman official named Theophilus, right? And so Luke tailors this gospel to be read among the Roman Empire, right? And so this heavenly announcement wasn't just, it was primarily a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, but it was also a direct challenge to the Roman emperor himself. Earlier, I mentioned that verb, euangelizomai, right? The, to declare good news, bring good news, right? Interestingly, that Roman emperor who was on the throne at this time, Caesar Augustus, he liked to use that word about himself. He declared that he was a divine being. He referred to himself as Lord and Savior. So basically, the angel is coming along and he is rebuking any such competition from the Roman emperor. He declares that there is only one true Savior. There is only one true Christ. There is only one true Lord. And his name is Jesus, not Caesar. Jesus is going to establish a kingdom that will never end. Unlike you who will die shortly and you will fade away. And the Roman Empire, the greatest empire ever, will crumble and fall away. In the vernacular, the angel's saying, look, bud, there's a new shepherd, a new sheriff in town. And it's not you. You are not boss anymore. Do you see why these words would have been a threat to the Roman leaders? And why the early Christians were seen as a threat, even though they were harmless as a, as a dove? 
is because they recognized there was one who deserved ultimate allegiance, whose kingdom was supreme, and it wasn't Caesar. And as you look down through the pages of church history and world history, time and again, great leaders rise up and they want the church to bow, don't they? And to say, there is another one who was supreme over you. And faithful and true Christians will never do that, will they? They will never bow their knee to Caesar over Christ. They will never bow their knee to Hitler or Mao Zedong or Stalin or whoever it is that is demanding that you put us on the throne rather than Christ. So these words of the angel were quite revolutionary, weren't they? Jesus is Savior, Christ and Lord. So this announcement was astounding and it would have been probably natural i think for the shepherds to question whether this was really true or not and i think it's interesting to to kind of verify the heavenly announcement the angel mentions a sign in verse 12 it says there and this will be a sign for you you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger we read that just a few moments ago earlier verse 7 that the baby was born and wrapped in swaddling clothes Now, I've shared before how I don't think that Jesus was born in a stable or a cave, but he was probably born in an acquaintance's house and then was put in a manger in the the area of the house where they would keep the animals at night. And so Jesus was there laying in the manger in the swaddling clothes. That would not have been incredibly unusual for a normal, common family like Jesus' family, but... That wasn't the point, right? The baby was entirely human and normal in in, in an outward display, but we also know that there's something different about this baby, right? And that's the mystery of Christmas and the glory of Christmas, isn't it? I am sitting there in human flesh. Let's look at this final section of this second part in verses 13 and 14. It says, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those who, with whom he is pleased. So the angel is no longer alone. There's a multitude of angels with him. There's a large group of angels that showed up all of a sudden. I mean, those poor shepherds. I mean, they were really afraid when one angel showed up. These poor guys now, they probably would pass out at this point, you know, when they see a multitude come together. So they see here and hear the angels praising God, saying, glory to God in the highest. This is really unique. I mean, Scripture speaks sometimes of angels declaring and praising God in the presence of God in heaven. But to my knowledge, this is the only case where angels come to earth and declare the praises of God on earth. This was something monumental, friends. This was something unique that was taking place, the birth of the Messiah. And so the angels come to earth to let us know that this was something monumental. They praise God for the long-awaited Savior, Christ and Lord, and His kingdom that He had now brought. Now, the last phrase of that verse in verse 14 is interesting. It says, as we just read, on peace, excuse me, on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, we've all heard a different translation, haven't we? On earth, on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. The King James Version used that translation and it is stuck in our culture because of the lasting significance of the King James 
But most modern Bibles translate it along the ESV, the, the, which were based on the earliest and the best manuscripts that we have. So I think they're accurate. And in my mind, this makes sense as well. Because in Scripture, peace meant restoration and reconciliation and wholeness. Obviously, not all people experience peace in a biblical sense, do they, with God? Many people are completely indifferent to this good news or even hostile to this good news so that they don't experience the peace that God offers. Rather, God gives peace to those with whom he is pleased, with those whom he has given grace to, with those who have believed in Christ. And I think these shepherds were already believers in the Lord. And that is why God revealed himself to them. And gave them the heavenly announcement. In a sense, they were the first examples of this reality. They were ones with whom God was well pleased. They believed. So we've seen the recipients of the heavenly announcement, the revelation of the heavenly announcement. Let's look finally at the response to the heavenly announcement. Verses 15 to 20, we read, When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. And as it had been told them. So the angels depart to heaven. The shepherds. Decide to go visit Bethlehem. Notice they weren't commanded to go, but they willingly went, didn't they, right? And they were excited. They went with haste, it says there, to go to Bethlehem. And when they arrived, you know what? It is just as they had been told. They see the baby. They see Mary and Joseph. The sign was confirmed. And so in turn, the shepherds then relate to Mary and Joseph everything they had been told by the angel. That this baby, this baby you're holding is the Savior, the Christ and Lord. And the shepherds told others as well. And they brought the good news just like the angels, right? Some people say they were the first human evangelist. They went around telling people the good news that they had heard about Jesus. These shepherds, they were the first evangelists. They came and told Mary and Joseph and the others. And then they went home on their way glorifying God, just like the angels did. It's interesting, as we conclude here, there's two different responses to the good news of the shepherds. The first response is the kind of the unnamed others that are mentioned there in passing. These would have been the friends, the family members, the the neighbors, the people might have just been bystanders listening to all this commotion that was going on. And it says there that they wondered or they marveled at the good news. They were interested, they were intrigued by Jesus. But notice that it does not say they gave a full faith commitment. 
like the shepherds. And isn't it true that a lot of people hear about Jesus and genuinely find this man to be incredibly fascinating? They marvel at him. They think he's the greatest man that ever lived. They write Christmas cards with sayings from Jesus. They hold him in a genuinely high regard. But it never goes further. It never goes further. But you see, friends, that God wants us to receive him as he really is. As Savior from our sins. As the Christ, the anointed one, the chosen one to deliver his people. And Lord, God in human flesh. God wants us to move from a place of wonder to a place of commitment. He wants you to become a follower of Christ. You see, because some announcements that are given... They're meant to just convey information, right? And that's good enough, just that you learn something. But then other announcements are meant to be given in a way that you respond to them, right? If you hear that the building is on fire, you don't just say, that's wonderful to learn that. I wonder how long it will take for the building to go up and smoke. Or there is a bomb threat, and so let's just ponder who it might have been that placed the bomb there. No, those announcements demand a response, don't they? And this announcement that the angels give, which was unique in human history, demands a response, doesn't it? Wonder is not enough for salvation. It's not enough for salvation. And so if you're not there, let me encourage you to ask God who Christ is. What he can mean for your life. How he can bring cleansing of sin that we all need. And yes, we all need it. And a relationship with God. Don't just wonder of the things that we have heard about this morning. Follow up with that. Go to God with your questions. Take some time. Read Scripture and apply this to your life. And move from a place of wonder, which is not a bad beginning point, but it is a bad end point. And move to commitment. Because that is the whole point. Is that He came for all people. And He came for you personally. But the second response is Mary. Like the shepherds, Mary was already a believer. But she wanted to know more, didn't she? Do you notice what it said about Mary there? It says she treasured up all these things. One commentator notes that that Greek word here, quote, indicates an ongoing contemplation of these events. She didn't just kind of marvel at that and then go about her way. Oh, wow, that's pretty amazing. Let me get back to this, that, and the other and put those things out of her mind. No, she thought deeply about these events and was trying to put these pieces together. Friends, the greatest thing we can do at Christmas time, if we know Christ, is to imitate Mary and to treasure these things in our hearts and to ponder His significance, to give Him the worth that He is due. 
Jesus is utterly unique and we should do whatever it takes to know him more. So why don't we take some time and think about these events of Christmas? How God became a man, the claims that he made and the life that he lived. To think about the peace that he offers. Wholeness, restoration, forgiveness that God offers and you have received. When was the last time that that really touched your heart? That you have been made right with God? That it didn't just happen X amount of years ago and now you're just on your merry way, but that you come back to the cross and you come back to that empty tomb and you come back to that cradle and you recognize this was all for you. And as Adam spoke about, not only did he come once, but he's coming again. And have a heart that longs for that return. Because one day he will not only be a spiritual savior, but he will be a political savior too. When he renews this entire creation. And he is Lord on earth of all things. And maybe as you look ahead to 2019, maybe that could be a thing that you put down as a personal goal in life to grow in your knowledge of Christ not just to have your debts paid and to lose a few pounds or whatever those things are great but to say Lord let me know you more let me dive into your word let me pick a Bible plan now before it's January 10th and say I want to read through your word this year and I want to know you and if I struggle with that let me get involved in one of the groups here of our church where they that they held you accountable or maybe call a friend and say hey could you pray for me help me to grow in this friends let whatever that that means or motive might be let us grow so that we look at that baby boy and treasure up in our hearts everything that we can stuff in our hearts about the glory of this child who is Savior, Christ, and Lord. Will you do that this year? Let's do it. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the depths of your condescension and the plan of God that the second person of the Trinity became a man. A little child, a little baby. Lord, may that power, that love, that tender love, just fall fresh on us this morning. Lord, we stand in awe of you. And Lord, I pray for someone here today who's never been hostile to Jesus. Always thought highly of him. Had a sense of wonder in their heart. That Lord, you might put on their hearts today. That wonder is not enough for salvation. But there has to be a movement of the will. And an obedience. To follow Christ. He drew crowds. But when it came to following him. Crowds thinned out. But oh, they're missing out on the greatest treasure. So, Lord, I pray you would help them to see today that they do need to turn from their sin and find a Savior who's there waiting for them. 
who died on a cross and rose from the dead so that they might have eternal life. And Lord, this morning for Your people who have tasted of this goodness, Lord, we do ask that You would just stretch our hearts to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ as 2 Peter 3.18 commands us to do. And to long for Your return, Lord, Think of Habakkuk 2.14, which says that one day the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the earth. And so we do long for that, your second coming. But until that day, help us to treasure all that you are, to praise you just as the angels do, to glorify you and for your wonderful deeds. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and ask this. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.